to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When my father was around, he it was his violence and it was anger. It was as if, um, you know, like just pretty much, if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. Um, when emotion was around, um, it wasn't looked at as. Um, something that had to be dealt with, with conversation, more so with toughness, with um, physical abuse, as if you could beat it out of the kid, um, which is totally <laughs> not what it's about. So um, just, yeah, the the way I remember just dealing with emotions as a child is um, just crying and being silenced with um, with abuse. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. So today is a little bit different on The Deep. We're going to hear from two men, Nas and Lino, both familiar with the struggle of mental health issues, rock bottoms and suicide. First, we're going to hear from Nas, a young father from the Gold Coast. Nas is Maori, works as a labourer. He's big, burly, tattooed and handsome. He doesn't fit the stereotype of someone that is fighting a mental illness. And that is the point. There is no one type of man that fits that stereotype. Nas bravely shares his story with us today. Content warning. If you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Nas, you have had a really interesting journey with your mental health and you're probably what most people wouldn't think to, I mean, I don't even know what the stereotype is of, of a male that is dealing with mental health issues, but I feel like you wouldn't naturally fit the stereotype. Would you agree? Yeah, off the bat, um, you probably wouldn't. But then again, what is the stereotype? Someone that holds um, everything that we're about to dive into. So off, off the forefront, you wouldn't, you wouldn't guess it. But I think that's the stigma that's created around mental health is, is that we picture something that's an illustration rather than an everyday everyday person, everyday human. Um, so, yeah, for sure, I totally agree with that. You're a Maori boy, tattoos, big, burly, you know, you look, you look like a tough guy. And I think that's what's really interesting about talking to you is, first of all, I want to know about what it was like growing up and what you were taught about emotional intelligence. So say that you, as a little boy, were distressed with something. Was it the attitude of toughen up, don't cry, don't be a pussy, or was it something different? When my father was around, he, it was his violence and it was anger. It was as if, um, you know, like just pretty much, if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. Um, when emotion was around, um, it wasn't looked at as... Um, something that had to be dealt with, with conversation, more so with toughness, with um, physical abuse, as if you could beat it out of the kid, um, which is totally <laughs> not what it's about. So um, just, yeah, the the way I remember just dealing with emotions as a child is um, just crying and being 
silenced with um with abuse or with uh taunting if if that makes sense so you you learn quite quickly to stifle emotion to swallow it to uh ignore it and how does that eventually impact your life as a grown up yeah it's it's ricocheted on into the behaviors i have as an adult and the more i look back onto it the emotion that's attached to what i was going through um and then now becoming an adult not being more aware of it before i started finding out what was going on in my mind you, you kind of be a victim to it instead of um, mm. allowing it to pass and so during when I was a child and into my adolescent ages, it's just heavy trauma, heavy trauma, not knowing how to deal with it and holding on to it with emotions. And and with those emotions, it's being trapped in my mind, not knowing how to release it, not knowing what it is, not knowing um, how to decipher it. And it just plays a role in your adult life um, purely because you don't know how to translate it. And it just becomes a... You become a prisoner in your own mind right from the get-go. You, you kind of have no no choice. When did you first notice that? Maybe when I was entering into high school, I noticed that um, certain things would trigger me. Um, just seeing happy families together, you know, seeing um, my friends growing up with a happy mum and dad and, um, and, and then afraid to be alone um, purely because... A lot of things happened to me when I was a child, so just working through that, mainly around my teenage years. You're touching on childhood trauma. Do you feel comfortable sharing a, a bit of what that was for you? Yeah, it all started when I was younger when my parents split. And um, with my dad leaving and my mum taking me and my older sister and my two brothers went with my father, I went from having what I felt was a secure home to mum never at home because she was working. Um, my sister in her room, um, she was going for her own mental battle. And just a poor, young, four-year-old kid, just just lonely. Um, so it started there just from the breakup of my parents. And then it got into us just um, being in situations when we were alone. And um, soon enough, I became a victim to sexual abuse at the age of five. And um, to talk about it now, I can. Um, and the emotions are there only because, like, I feel sorry for that little kid. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's no longer pain because I've dealt with it. But to talk about it and to bring it up, it just triggers that emotion. But that's where kind of my life took a spin. And your, your emotions are so welcome here. And you know because you, you're doing the work that everyone, especially listening to you, share this is holding the space with you so you can feel however you need to feel right now when you're talking to me with that time how long did that was that a one-off episode or did that occur for some time yeah it was reoccurring it was repeatedly and um the more it happened because i didn't even know what was happening to be honest i'd completely like as I look back, I just remember being in a position where it was happening um, and I just didn't know what to make of it. I didn't even know it was wrong. Like, I just didn't talk about it because I didn't know. Purely, as a five-year-old kid, you can't comprehend what's going on if you haven't been taught that that's not right. So it would happen to me and then I will just, um, just get back on with life. And I think the psychological damage it does to a child, an innocent child, um, doesn't ricochet until the child grows up. You know what I mean? Like, the, for me, like, I talk about it in a third-person sense because when that stuff happens to you and how people say you lose your identity, you you really just become an autopilot human. You, your sense of emotions kind of get dwindled and suppressed and numb. And then throughout your whole life, I think I was just chasing what was taken from me um, when that happened. And, and and I can feel a lot of people that are listening to this who has happened uh, – um, if that has happened to them, they'll understand because it's 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 a, it's a bizarre it's it's a bizarre way to talk through this and to allow other people to understand what happens to you mentally. It's not just um like you get abused and all of a sudden you become this sad kid. You literally just are trying to continue to be a kid, but 
someone's taken something from you that you don't even know and you don't even recognize until you're older because you lose those traits and behaviors that should have been happiness, you know, enjoyment. But for some reason, you can't feel those things because that's what abuse does to you. It takes away those feelings. And because you were so little and you didn't know what was happening, at what, at what stage did this trauma come through in your life? Was it, was it stifled for years and years and then there was a moment? I felt like um, throughout my life from when it happened to my early 20s, it was just me trying to find a home, me trying to fit in with a family because I never had that as a child. Um, but the damage it took on to me like, psychologically didn't really come about until my child was born, until my firstborn. I have two ch children, um, an older son who's now five and a daughter who's four. Um, and so having a child of my own just triggered the shit out of me because I am now in a position where I have to become everything that I wasn't taught, everything that I didn't know how to be, but I knew what type of father I wanted to be. So... Um, uh, I I just I felt like a tsunami of all this anger and every emotion you could think of had just flooded out of me um, of just bad energy that I was holding for all those years and and uh, my kid's mother copped the most of it um, and so did my kids. Say so I was turning into everything I didn't want to be and and it's so bizarre because you get. You get trapped, like, you know, how they kind of um, talk about how if it happens to you, you're more likely of a chance for you to commit that as well. Mm, and um, mm. growing up, I was like, how the heck do people get abused, and but then they do it to the next, you know, and, and then they repeat it. Like, that That threw me out the window. And it wasn't it wasn't in my mind or nor was it ever a part of me to, to do that to another person, but it, I can understand the damage that something like this can do to a person and then go from me being a newly awaiting father to just mean having the same traits of my dad towards my son, which is just because you don't know how to control your emotions, you you press that on to everyone around you that's trying to hold space for you, that's trying to love for you. You just become your own poison. You become a cancer. Um, and that's how it kind of, unleashed itself and where I started my journey to rock bottom. It sounds like you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, and 100%. you were brought up in a certain way and you knew you wanted to do things differently, but you had no way of knowing how to do that thing. Mm. So it sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I was I was doomed from the start, hundred percent. What you said hit rock bottom. Can you take me there? Can you take me on those those points in time that took you to rock bottom? Yeah, so like my whole life I kind of like lived with depression but not knowing what it was until um, I met my, met my wife and um, she just started picking up on things like on behaviours and traits that someone with depression has and she was kind of like my first um, first person who held me accountable. So I started getting into like seeing counsellors, psychiatrists, psychologists, witches, healers, anything, anything really to just um, handle the trauma because that all come about. Um, and the more that I was on medication, the more I was seeing people that I feel didn't see me, didn't hear me, that were just sitting in a room and just had a paper and pen and, you know, repeatedly, okay, tell me your story. I'll let all these emotions out. And then by the end of our one hour block, okay, um, I'll see you next week. And here I am just like, a vulnerable, like all these emotions that just brought out. Now, what do I do between the time I see you next? I feel like I don't want to be in the space of what we just discussed, but yet you're telling me to come back next week. And how do I come back when you just told me to unload all, all this tra trauma? Mm. And just being from a depressed state, I believe where I was at that time when my kids were a bit younger, I was I was living in a depressed state. So vices, anything that I would choose to numb numb myself, alcohol, um, you know, drugs, um, or just like food, even food. I was eating myself to sleep just to fall asleep. 
But then going from a depressed state to a pseudo-suicidal state, that's when I started hitting, hitting rock bottom. Um, I was eating poorly. Um, I was I was taking heavy drugs. And for me to turn something that what used to numb me to just what used to trap me, that's where I started really making uh, a lot of mistakes because I was just purely just trying to um, escape my mind. But by taking drugs and not not dealing with my issues, I was actually trapping myself in my mind because my body wasn't receptive to, to any positivity. So what drugs were they? Um, I started off with just cocaine and and, and weed and then um, I just went straight to ice and just became pretty much an ice addict for a couple of months. And um, during that time, you know, even my whole life, I've told myself, never, ever touch that stuff. And, um, you know, it, it became just simply, simply a vice for me just to escape life. Because uh, when I chose to do that and acknowledging that I went from a depressed state to suicidal state, um, I, I didn't even feel myself worthy enough to be a father. And I started hanging up on my kids when um, they would call because at this time I had left had left my wife and kids to kill myself. Um, and when I had failed to do that, I couldn't even kill myself. I just was like, didn't want to live. So um, I, I used drugs as a, as a, I used ice as a way to just purely escape life and not front all my demons and be the person I needed to be. So you have, um, a wife, you have two very small children. How old are they at the time? Um, that would have been about three and four. But this happened like maybe a year ago. Oh, this is only a year ago. Yeah, still And old. still very new. Mm. And when you say you left to kill yourself, had you made a decision and you walked out of that house to, to do that? Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Um, I just drove in my car. I just told myself to drive my car into a pole, and I was just going as fast as I could. And um, I just think about how and what what could have happened is that my car broke down on the highway. True story. And um, I was no, uh, yeah, like, and um, I was pissed off and angry at the same time because, like, I was in the car speeding. I was like, this is it. Yes, I can finally just get out of here. And then my car broke down. I was like, what a bum. Like, what a loser. Like, I couldn't even kill myself, to be honest. That's what I was going through. And then uh, my car broke down, and then uh, these headlights came on behind me. And it was the RACQB or, or the insurance people that drive around on the highway. And um, I was just like, what the heck? Like, either there's a guardian angel or something just doesn't want me to die. And I, and, um, I just broke down. I broke down in tears because, like, I couldn't even, not only could I not kill myself, I couldn't, I was, like, being saved. And um, I didn't want to be, you know, like, I was just, I was, yeah, it was a surreal moment where I'm just, like, I finally left, finally left, I'm about to do the deed, about to escape, about to kill myself, and then my car just breaks down. and add salt to the to the wound is that um, there's help behind me and he fixes my car <laughs> and then I kind of just just like oh well today just may not be the day um, but still have myself in a suicidal state I still wasn't you know that wasn't my big moment to be like oh, okay I'm good you know like we, maybe this is not the right thing I was just like oh well today's just not the day to, to do it that's so heavy and it's such a miracle. Yeah, 100%. So what happens then? Where do you go from that that moment? Oh, uh, like, I wish I could say I went upwards, but I went worse. Like, I, I just used drugs and um, not being present with my family at all and pushing everything that was healthy away from me, um, family, you know, my wife, my kids. Um, anyone that wanted me to get right, to get better, I just pushed it all away because I purely just had enough. I had enough of life. And um, when you're in that state, like, that's how I feel for so much people who, like, it's one thing to be depressed, and I know that's not easy. Like, I know that's that's 
that's a hard pill to swallow. And then when you just allow suicidal thoughts, you constantly believe that there's no other option. There's no other way to make you good, like to make you feel better, other than killing yourself. And um, you begin to entertain the thoughts because you like to stay in that state of mind. I, I became, I was depressed, became suicidal, but then I never wanted to leave that state of mind. So to be in that type of headspace, is, it blows me away today because I'm like, we don't even know that we are our own poison. We are our own cancer sometimes because we do choose to stay sometimes in those states. It sounds like it's addictive. Oh, for sure. So you get deeper into suicidal tendencies. You, uh, The depression is rife the drugs, the whole thing, you've pushed everyone away. What what takes you to your rock bottom? For me at the time is I've lost my wife. I've lost my kids. I don't feel worthy enough to stick around for them. And then not accepting who you are. Like at the end of the day, I am no one. Like I felt like my identity was robbed as a kid. Therefore, it's easy enough for me to say, well, how can I be anything? I just became sick of life. I became sick of the person I was becoming. And the more you're, the more you just in that space, the more you think of that, the time, time becomes, time stops, to be honest. Time just is invaluable and you just want out. You really just think that by leaving, um, it can solve all your problems. But, um, it doesn't. It just creates problems for everyone else. And, Fighting that whole emotional battle between, like, if I kill myself, then my kids will not grow up. But then I'm thinking, no, nah, they'll be better off, you know, like I'm not there anyway. And just, again, just vicious cycles of um, torturing yourself. So for me, it just got to the point where I knew um, I wouldn't be able to be a husband again. I wouldn't be able to be a father again. And um, because of those two things, I wouldn't be able to get back. This is what's interesting for me because, you know, male suicide, the statistics are horrific in both Australia and New Zealand, um, heavily on the Indigenous side as well. And I always think about that because you're saying I'm doing them a favour, you know, by leaving them. And I'm sure the families that have been left feel the complete opposite and feel like there is so many other ways that we could have worked through this to save our son or save our husband or brother. You've been there. You've been right in the moment of choosing to take your life. Does it feel like it would just be a relief for you personally or do you feel like you're saving everybody? by that choice a bit of both like if if like 90 percent, it feels like you're doing yourself the biggest favor um and then because you're attached to other people that's when you you start to feel like you're doing them a favor um but i think it's a very selfish act to be honest it's, it's something that um you do for yourself if you know like you you hold up I'd like to think when I was contemplating that, it was um, me taking responsibility. But um, And by saying that, I'm, I mean by it was all on me, you know. It was um, my weight. This was my weight. Um, but by doing so, you automatically pass that weight on to the people that love you. Was that your only attempt? Nah. So pr prior to that, years ago, um, I think my son... I think my wife was pregnant and her and her father caught me um, with the rope on my neck. Um, I tried I tried before. And same thing, I left. I left the house and um, drank two bottles of something and, um, yeah, just got a rope and tied and, and um, hanged myself. And I think the rope must have broken <laughs> again, um, probably because it was a bad knot, but Again, like my um, wife and my father-in-law at the time caught me with a rope around my neck. And that's when I kind of knew that I was living in a suicide state. Um, 
And then once the me leaving my wife and kids in the car, um, uh, the last time, um, which was only a couple of months ago, uh, I tried to take my own life again. Um, I just had a bunch of pills ready, ready to take, and um, I just became hysterical and just this was kind of like my last my last outing um but what kind of stopped me was um i called a helpline for the first time and um just just venting to them what was going through my mind and they called the ambulance this was only a couple of months ago yeah maybe at the start of the year start of the year or yeah yeah january february so like ten months ago. Yeah, and it and it's it's crazy because um I've come like leaps and bounds. I've I felt like I've climbed the mountain since then, but to just know that I was at the start of this year, and that's why it kind of took so long to um to do this podcast because I think that depression can be cured, but it's it's not cured where it goes away. Um, the cure is in your everyday proactive actions and and how you address triggers how you address emotions how you address everything um so knowing that it only happened at the start of the year um i still hold tendencies of um depression suicidal but i can say that i'm cured because i manage them and that's just my day-to-day fight that i i live through today because we did we tried to make a time a couple months ago and then i got a message from you that said it's just not the right time and I completely respect that and it's a I just think it's so courageous of you to share how this is a continuing it's a continuing fight you know and I don't want to say it like that as in like a cancer battle is a fight for your life but it kind of Mm. is in the way of it seems slippery you know, it yeah. seems like this thing, if you're not on it, like, and you're not turning up for yourself every day, it could just pull you back. Yep. Just like any any bad habit you have just can't be stopped. It needs to be replaced with a better habit. That's something that feeds you. I'm all about just stopping the behaviors that lead me to where my mind used to take me, like rabbit hole thinking and um, just knowing that I hold emotions and um, the biggest thing for me is detaching emotions from the stories that I've created in my mind and the trauma is detaching the emotions that are connected to the memories and once I can sit Mm -hmm. in that space and not be victim to it um, I can sit in those emotions and just know that my body has been trained by myself um, to release certain emotions, whether it's crying or anger or frustration or whatever it is, um, you know, being scared or anxiety, um, that that's just what I've taught my body to do um, when I come across certain memories. And it's not to live into that. It's to remind myself of the reality that I'm in um, and staying there. That has helped me just fight the fight. How did you get out of that slump? I remember just being on drugs um, consistently for a couple of days. I was on ice and a couple of other things as well. Um, And I just rocked up to work one time and I do concreting, so it's a heavy physical job. And um, I just remember spewing my guts out like the whole day. I was just spewing, like I couldn't hold water. It was a hot day. Um, It was a big day of work and I just couldn't hold down water. And I just remember spewing, spewing my guts out. And right then I felt like a junkie. I felt like, man, you, you, like, where where are you now? Like it was a big, just like um, wake up call because I went to work to kind of hide myself and like to to let everyone know that I was fine. Um, and then when my behaviors like um, drugs and that started coming about because my body was just going through torture, like it was going through abuse, um, wasn't eating, was staying awake, was on drugs all the time. Um, that's when I kind of like knew I had to get clean. Um, and about that time is when I, because I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person, I'll just go cold turkey. Like if I, like if I know that it's not harming, like if I know that I'm in, in the shit, like I, I can just go flat cold turkey, uh, which was a real, <laughs> even I didn't at the time, shouldn't really do that. 
like the whole come down and all that kind of stuff, again, you trap yourself in your mind because your body just went from taking a roller coaster ride on drugs to just being a numb doll um, that can't operate because it's coming down. Um, and that's where I found myself being suicidal again because I was locked in my mind. And um, that's the last time I tried to take my life, which was the saddle of the pills ready to take. And I called for help. Wow. And you called the helpline. And what do yeah. what happens there? Do they say, go to the hospital, you need help? Yeah. What do they say? Yeah, they're so cool. Like, I, I feel like and this is one thing that I pointed out um, is that it sucks that it has to take uh, a lifeline call for you to be heard, for you to feel seen. Mm. And this is no discredit to all the professionals out there that are offering help, like counselling and psychologists. But for me at the time, I, I feel that people who are heavily suicidal need to be, just want to be heard, just want to be seen. And um, I was hysterical at that time during the phone call because I really just, people that are listening in on this that know the feeling of just holding that, holding that weight, that's, you don't want it. Like, you just want to let it go. And the only way you can let it go is by, is by uh, killing yourself. So when I made the phone call, um, they're so good just to kind of diffuse anything that um, would put me more in a position to do it. So little things like turning the light on, who's in the home, who am I with, what have I done today, keeping my mind off, pretty much keeping you distracted and just knowing that they're there, knowing that they're ready um, to come and assist is where I kind of felt first time someone from a professional background actually care rather than just listen mm -hmm. um and then she just pretty much told me the behaviors that i was um voicing um she was uh worried about me and so she she sent uh the ambulance straight away probably like within 20 minutes i was there and i just broke down i was a wreck because for me that was like me saying i just needed this to happen for me to stop what I was doing and I want to get help now. Like I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm not good because it's taken the ambulance to come up to my house, which is, I was embarrassed, but at the same time, I was so grateful. Just being in that whole situation of the ambulance coming to pick me up, me being just where I was um, and being in hospital, being admitted pretty much into the psych ward of, of the hospital and sitting with other patients um, it felt like as if I was in a movie with those white straitjackets on and just rocking and just hearing screaming and everything you think that a psych ward is. And myself just crying, just, um, you know, just really, really asking myself questions of why am I here? Like, I don't belong here, but I know that I'm broken. So maybe I do belong here and fighting that battle. Um, but just really acknowledging that shit this can't be me like i know i know i've made some big mistakes and i know that um you know I've, I've done a lot of wrong things towards my family um but that's where i kind of that that's where my rock bottom was because it took me to be in that place and to realize that i became one of those people that belonged in this place um and i didn't like that because looking back on it now that became my new identity i was this broken mess that belonged in a place like that. It sounds confronting, but did that help? Yeah, I felt like it needed to happen because for me, it, just being in that environment of just um, in a medical institution just really made me sit. And um, I think for the first time in a long time leading up to that, I was allowed to be in my mind without any pain or without any um, um, emotion because I had um, just come off drugs. I think I, I had cried all the tears out that were left in me um, and I was just able to sit for that little time I was in the room in peace and um, it felt like and when I say awakening that was me saying okay like I'm willing to try something else I'm willing to try what's out there um, that I haven't tried before and um, big thing for me was um, a couple of my friends I kind of already knew that they were doing um, meditation and breath work and um, an organization that I called on to there's um, Men's Medicine, um, which is up here on the Gold Coast, and they do awesome stuff. They um, live and preach um, holistic ways of being mentally fit, being mentally healthy. And I reached out, and lucky for me, I was able to go on one of their walks, which is just a powerful experience of just um, 
being exposed to who you are through breathwork, meditation, and um, being around other men who are vulnerable enough to share their demons, to share their journeys, which has never been anything that I've been a part of for Pacific Islanders and, and Maori men to come together and to openly talk about what is troubling us um, as individuals and as um, a culture and mm. just the whole whole movement of what they're doing radiated with me because if, if for me it was um, comfortable. I, I felt like I was just, again, being heard, being seen. Um, and, and that's what kick-started off me from recognising what has not served me to date. Um, drugs has not served me whatsoever. Um, going to counselling sessions and all that kind of stuff, it, it does play a role. Um, but for me, it's not, it's not, there's no cure in that. It just feels like you have to go repeatedly um, until you pretty much get tired of it. Um, mm. But with, you know, mind, body, soul, spirit, um, echoes into your identity. Because for me, I've spent so many years of my life just running away from who I thought I was and not becoming who I need to be, who I wanted to be. Has it really changed how you turn up as a parent and as a, as a husband and a friend? A hundred percent. Like just as a person in general, because, because you've got you, like because you, because you choose you every day, um, therefore you choose who to be every day. Um, whether that's like a husband, father, um, colleague at work, you are in control of everything. Um, where before you, you, you fall victim to everything controlling you. Um, so life for me now, when people ask me how I am, I'll go straight to the deep end and I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm just happy being happy. I'm happy being normal with normal with the thing, but I'm just happy to be free. And um, I thank people. Who have, who have been through shit, just want to be free. Mm, so beautiful. Our final question today is, who are you when no one's watching? I'm a man that will go to sleep proud of the things that I've done that day and I wake up knowing that I can do better things to make myself go to sleep even prouder by showing up for my kids, being present with them, being everything that I am that I didn't have and be a support to um, their mother and be present with her. More so just, um, I just want to be a light to all those that have contemplated suicide. I know, I know firsthand that it's tough and um, hearing something like this may not resonate, but um, when you do hit your rock bottom, when you do think that there's no option left, just uh, reach out to anyone, to anyone and, um, if not them, reach out to me because I'll, I'll always hold space for people going through this shit because um, it's something for me that um, I just want to help people get out of it because I know life's worth living and not just surviving. It's, it's really there for us to live. That's so beautiful. And thank you for putting yourself out there for our community as well if they need support. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks for having us, though. And um, I appreciate you and all your work that you do to get these messages across to the world because. Um, the more we talk about it, the more we break stigmas, and the more we break stigmas, the more we can all enjoy life. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So after hearing that Nas was deeply impacted by men's medicine, I had to know more about it. So I got to speak to the founder, Lino. Lino is the creator of Men's Medicine, a business that focuses on healing men through the community nature, breath, and ritual-based walks. Men like Nas have been deeply impacted by Lino and find real hope for the future. Lino, you, you are the creator, uh, the founder, the mind behind men's medicine. Yes. 
we are going to really look into that and discover the beauty of the service you're giving to other men and women a little bit later. But this is an episode on men's mental health and the way that they see themselves in the world. And you are on such a path to help others. That has to start somewhere and that's where I want to start with you. Why and how did you come to be in the position of doing this work? Uh, Childhood for me when I was growing up, I thought, one, we've got a big family and I loved being with my family. But the other side of things, I guess, growing up in the 80s, parenting was very different back then. And my upbringing, it was, we grew up in a three-bedroom housing commission house. My parents are both from Pacific Islands, um, living in, from what I remember, when we were growing up, it was it was predominantly an all-white community. And um, it was quite a rough upbringing. That's what my upbringing was. It was quite rough. Um, and I guess, you know, my, my dad comes from that old school mentality, uh, that mindset of, you know, you bring your kids up tough. And that's kind of how, how we were brought up. Is it normalized for you? Do you grow up and you feel like that is how to behave in the world? Do you become a violent person? Um, I think, yeah, I think in those days, it wasn't, it wasn't abnormal for me to, I didn't think that violence was like, I understood that it wasn't right, but I guess the more I became, a te- you know, it got into my teenage years, the more it became, and I, I guess, you know, going through puberty, the more normalized it felt within me, um, hanging, you know, hanging out with my footy mates, going to parties, knocking around on the streets, you know, with friends, you know, um, after football, you know, my, my cousins, it, yeah, violence wasn't abnormal. Um, it wasn't until I was in my twenties when I'd actually quite, quite badly hurt someone that I realized, Ooh, you know what? I probably, you can't take that back. You can't take that those punches back. So it wasn't until I was in my twenties did I realize I should probably I should probably have a second think about or a strong think about what I think is acceptable and what's not. Was was that attack a rock bottom for you? No, that one wasn't. It was more of a realization. Basically, mm-hmm. um, we were having a, a disagreement. Um, we caught up. We met. Um, the way that they were carrying on, it was sort of. It was almost like, you know, today's keyboard warriors. They were happy to talk a certain way online. Then when we finally met up, they didn't really talk at all. And then I decided to take it into my own hands. And what I realized was the damage that I left on them was, um, yeah, it wasn't something to be proud of. And I was just, and I looked at, I remember looking at my hands and I was like, man, you don't realize how big your hands are. You don't realize the impact or the weight that goes behind them. And I was like, man, I can't, I can't know how it's going to end up after I've done what I've done. So I'm like, man, I just, I just better stop punching. I just got to stop punching like violence. I'm like, it's not, it's not okay. It's clearly not okay because the end result, like you cannot turn that around. I can't undo what I've done. And the following year, I probably had two rock bottoms. That oh three rock bottoms that year. The first one was I'd been been partying for a couple of days, and um, basically what had happened was I'd ended up finding myself by myself. So we went to a concert. I booked out a whole booth. We had this big party. Everyone, but we'd already been partying at a, at a festival on that weekend. And then it came, I'd already booked the booth. I'd forgotten about it. And everyone, somehow I ended up finding myself by myself and no one was around, but it wasn't the first time it had happened. It was like the third time in a month with this particular group of friends. And I guess I picked up on the pattern and it made me feel extremely lonely and I didn't know what to do. Someone took me with them. And then eventually I found myself um, sitting outside just by the river and, and I contemplated just because I don't swim very well. So I, I actually contemplated just going for a swim, knowing that I would never be able to save myself. Um, I reached out to someone. They came to, you know, they uh, came and picked me up. 
Um, and then later that uh, after that, I hit another rock bottom. Um, I took myself away. I moved down to Sydney, went down to Sydney to think about what I wanted to do with my life. But before that, like I slept for four days, literally thinking, um, I, yeah, I did. I, I kept on sleeping because I didn't know how to be awake. Every time mm -hmm. I woke up, I didn't want to be awake. So I would just go back to sleep again until I finally woke up four days later and I like on the Wednesday and I thought to myself, man, what was I thinking? Like, how did I, I was like, who was I being? I was like, man, what have you done to yourself? So I reached out to a friend and he took me in for the next week. I went and stayed with him for the following week. And the plan was originally to move to Sydney, but I ended up getting into a relationship with a girl that uh, that came for me previously and helped me out. And then later that year, in the following year, I found myself at a rock bottom where um, I had I was alone by myself. I, I was no longer, I'd just recently broken up with my partner. Um, I'd also lost my wallet, so I had no money either. I had no credit on my phone. My car got impounded. Um, I cleaned out my fridge before I started the weekend, so there was no food in the fridge. The house was pretty much clean out of um, majority of the furniture, and and I looked at the balcony and I thought to myself that could be an option. Wow. So there'd been times, there's been multiple times where you felt suicidal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like they're they're like the they're probably the last three times I can remember. What happens then between all of this kind of upset and disruption? What is it that takes you on path that makes you go, I need to get in control of depression, rage, I need to do a little bit of work on getting through this? Yeah. Um I guess my you know, as you were asking, I just, my mother and my daughter, but probably initially, like any time I, I think that I'm on a bad path or I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing or I've ever been up to mischief, like legitimately, my mother is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Like, what would my mum say? Or... Um, man, my mom's going to be really disappointed. Um, and just that thought is enough to wait, like to, to make me make a better decision. And how does one do that? Making smarter decisions, making healthier choices, making smarter choices. At the time, I chose to stop drinking. I started, chose to stop partying. Um, and I think I did that for like nine months. I dived a little bit more into my health and fitness. Um, I think I was maybe like two years into my personal training. Like I'd, I'd been qualified as a PT for maybe one or two years. So I started actually training clients um, not long into that. And um, I started eating better and that helped. And then eventually I bought a business and um, I just continually growing myself out of that um, through the most recent hardest times. The I guess that, that mindset of adding more value to myself will make me feel, make me more like logically it should, if you add more value to yourself, you should become more valuable. That, that has been like an unconscious mindset that I've always had. So I, um, daily, daily podcast, YouTube, um, going back to church, um, not going out, surrounding my, not surrounding myself with those circles anymore going back to see my family more, spending time with my daughter. Um, and eventually it just, one thing, I just kept on getting better at that, at investing in myself. I wanted to start talking about men's medicine because there really isn't anything like it. And we know the statistics for male suicide um, in Australia is not getting better and it is, incredibly high at the moment eight a day six out of eight suicides are, are men but you have a greater chance a 30 percent chance greater chance of taking your life if you are indigenous 
And that it goes for Australia and New Zealand. Wow. So you're saying to me six men a day. Out of eight, yeah, yes. Are dying. Yeah. And so this is the thing, right? We we know how horrific it is. We understand that culture plays heavily into that. Um, yeah. I want to just discuss for a moment the Indigenous element, um, whether that is Australian or New Zealand. Well, in fact, you have a, a big Maori following, very big. And I am married to a Maori man and I have a, a Maori child. And I think it is incredibly fascinating the way in which these men are taught how to communicate. I think that's a really good place to start because I do think that spills over to other cultures and Anglo-Saxon Australians as well mm -hmm. about communication and being able to share emotion and just toughen up boy or don't be a pussy or all of that stuff. Yes. Why do you feel that this looks like a safe place for those men? I think because what they're seeing is people that they can relate to. A little bit like what Moana did for the Polynesian community um, or what The Rock does for the Polynesian community. You're seeing someone else doing something that looks like someone else that looks like you doing something that the rest of us aren't. And when people are looking at us, they're seeing a whole bunch of Polynesians, but predominantly, you know, Maori, um, you know, men, and they're like, man, they look like me. And there's something that they're doing that looks like somatically, physiologically, their bodies are telling them, I'm seeing something that I feel I need. So many men have come on our walks and they go, and when we talk about, you know, what, what brought you here, a lot of the time they share, I don't know, I don't know what this was. I don't know what I was getting myself into. All I know is that when I saw the video, I knew I had to be here. I knew I had to come. I needed that. Let's just talk quickly about this video that went viral because I think it will help explain to everyone listening what we're discussing. We're uh -huh. seeing really big, beautiful brown or black men tattooed uh -huh. up right we're, we're seeing big muscles but then we're also seeing them breaking down in tears we're seeing them screaming um rageful type screams in a, a waterfall you know like it is so picturesque and also impactful because what we're seeing there is something that is like we don't see that we don't get to see men especially that look like that be vulnerable share talk um come together and be able to hold space for other men and i think that mm. was my interpretation of the video and i think that's what people will be experiencing potentially as the trigger to book in yeah, so I guess if you're carrying a lot of anger, frustration, rage, and you're seeing someone who's releasing just the thing that you're keeping down, I guess naturally you're going to think to yourself, yeah, I could do with that, huh? I, <laughs> I need to go there so I can do that because I've got some things that I want to let go of. I've got some things that I'm not telling anyone. I've got some things that I can't tell my partner. Um, and when you see that there's like mass groups of us and the fact that I guess we've continued to to show up and do this in multiple cities with more and more, you know, men and now women, that what people have come to learn is that this is a permanent thing. We're not stopping. We're not going anywhere. This wasn't a thing that happened and then it disappeared and that we – we started something that didn't exist and now it's, you know, it's, it's happening. There's, there's many more um, that are doing exactly what we're doing. Um, and I guess that kind of is a massive reflection of or really highlights how needed it is out there. And I think that's so fascinating because why is it culturally what is the disconnect? 
what is happening there? Is it not culturally acceptable to be vulnerable? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so, which is interesting because, you know, we're always told to be open and to be honest. Um, but then there's almost like this underlying silent code of, you know, this is how a man is or this is how a woman is and this is how a man behaves and this is the way a woman should be. And I guess where it changes when it comes to me is I'm the, when I, I'll go back to that curiosity again, who says, who says that it has to be any certain way? You discussed that there was like common themes, right? One of them was that everyone is closed and they've got blockages and they're just not open to talking. What other common themes have you felt throughout men, especially on these walks? Sometimes what we've noticed is that there's a lot of fathers that have come with their sons. Sometimes we've noticed a lot of siblings have come with their brothers or their, or their sisters. Um, sometimes we've noticed that there is a high level of addiction in the group. Maybe there's a high, high level of abuse in the group. Mm. Um, you know, there, maybe there's a high level of depression that's in the group. Yes, there's always some kind of theme that sort of rocks up, uh, that shows up in, in the group. And, um, and that definitely has an impact and influence on, on how we kind of adjust ourselves and, and change the day for who's there. You said something so powerful when we were doing our brief, and that was suicide is always on the table for men. Yes. Probably, I probably realized that one more recently than before was um, how common the option of suicide is for a lot of men. And when I say that, like it's sort of, you think about if you've got a problem and you think about your options for solutions, suicide is one of those. Mm. There's, there's counseling, there's talking to a friend, there's talking to your parents, there's um, journaling, there's meditating, there's all the things you could think about. And suicide for a lot of men, is on that on that list as well. What I understand from the statistics that we just went through is that men are opting for suicide over any of the other options. Which for me that just that that I think is the importance of this, but I do want to ask you something that I'm sure a lot of people may be thinking or have you ever been challenged on the fact where people are like, well, are you qualified? Like where's your doctorate or your PhD to deal with my psychological issues? What we share is that the medicine will do its thing and that everyone has their own experience. And with the tools that we provide, we're not here to say that we're there to cure anything. We cannot save you. Only you can save yourself. You only get out what you put in, and that's completely up to you. Um, but the way that it's been designed is to guide our people through an experience, and whatever they cut out of that experience, because we don't want to project onto them um, what their experience is going to be, but the power of the tools that we use have the power to shift energy, have the power to shift feelings, emotions, your mindset on whatever you were thinking. I'll never tell anyone. We do not tell people to stop seeing your specialist, stop seeing your psychologist, stop seeing, taking your medication. We never tell anyone that. If anything, we provide some alternative options that you can add to what you're already doing. What yeah, you choose okay. to do with that and after that, like like that's completely up to you. Can we just discuss it? I'm not asking for your remedy or your recipe, but – what is this? How long is the day and what are we to expect? Uh, the day goes, we aim for it to start at sunrise and then mm -hmm. finish mid-afternoon. When you go for a walk out bush or when you go out to Mother Nature, um, a lot of people aren't doing that. A lot, of people, mm. a lot of people aren't even going to the beach, let alone going up to a rainforest. So they're doing something that's completely out of their comfort zone. Um, and in that space, you've got the freshest, the freshest of oxygen. So 
A lot of people don't even get that on top of that. And then you're also doing it in a community of people, a group of men that are going, that have very similar experiences. So whatever you're doing out there, there's like 20, 30, 40, 50 men out there mm. doing there for the exact same reasons. So you're not mm. alone. The exercises that we choose to use are massively built around connection and community. And I guess the base concept is that without connection, you're the opposite. You're disconnected. So if we can start off with connection, then we can start building the community from there. And there's some really quite, if you're new to this work, there are some things that could feel very confronting for people that are just coming out, you know, from their regular life and regular job and dealing with some demons, things like breath work and eye gazing and mm -hmm. partner work can feel very uncomfortable. Uh -huh. Do you just throw them in or are you, I mean, I'm not asking for you to take me through the whole day, but do you have resistance, I guess, is what I'm asking. There's always resistance. There's always resistance. And I guess there's always resistance just before something great's about to happen. Very mm -hmm. rarely will you ever come across people that are completely in surrender just before something beautiful is about to happen. The only way you're ever really going to have that is because someone knows what they're doing. Mm. And the majority of the people that we've got coming to us, this is the first time for majority of them that they've ever done anything in terms of personal development, um, personal growth, self-improvement, anything like that. Which is kind of great because you're going to get them at their, you're going to get them at their most uh, workable, right? Because they've yes. got no expectation. Yeah. I want to discuss uh, the idea of toxic masculinity and the impact of that filtering through our society, right? Do you ever discuss the responsibility of being a man and not allowing that to be toxic and to have this kind of, I guess, that infiltration into friendship groups and when you go back home, is there a sense of responsibility that these men take on? What I share with the men is is that being a man is leadership. Whether the ship sinks or sails, it's all on you. All the good, the bad and the ugly, all your wins and all your losses, it's all on you. A lot of men, they work long hours. A lot of men work FIFO, fly in, fly out. A lot of men spend a lot of days in the office, um, a lot of hours in the office. And I guess for a lot of men, and stereotypically over time, men have the provider role. They provide for the family. They put food on the table. And I guess what's happened over time is that that's all they thought they were good for, just putting food on the table. And a lot of men that, when they, they spend so much time at work, they've forgotten about the people that they're actually working for. So what do we share with them is, is that don't spend so much time at work. And this work that we're doing here is really important. Men's work is extremely important. Spending time with your peers, with your friends, with other men so that you can grow, so that you can return back to your family is extremely important. But it's always important to know when to go home. So after you finish this, go home, love your partner, love your, pa love your wife, love your kids, love your siblings, love your parents, because these are the people you share your life with. And mm. the majority of the men, when we ask them, you know, why do you work? They, every single one of them, 100% of them all say, for my family. Yeah. And then I ask the question, how, how long do you spend at work? They go, I'm at work like all day. And I go, now, if you were working for your family, at which point did you achieve that? Like, have you, you've, you've got the house, you, everyone's got food on the table, clothes on their back, and they're playing sport, and you've got the car and all of that sort of stuff. You're well, yeah, your family's well provided for. Oh, yeah, definitely, bro. Like, and I'm, and the question is, like, when? Like, like years ago. And it's like, okay, so you've already achieved the thing that you set out mm. to achieve. Did you realize that? They're like, oh, not since you put it like that. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, and it's like, okay, so it's important for you to know when to go home. Just like nothing good happens after 2 a.m. in the nightclub. 
<laughs> don't spend don't spend so much time with your boys or at work that you forget to go home because there's someone at home waiting for you, your partner, your wife, your kids. And this is why men's medicine is massively built on families um, is because this is how we contribute to society is the perspective is better men equal better families equal better communities equals a better world. So that's an interesting place to land because some people won't be able to get to a walk, um, especially with the COVID situation and they're listening to this and they are desperate for potentially Uh their children or their partner. What do you believe is some great starting points if you're seeing someone in extreme need of help? Where do we start? There's something that we share and I guess we all live by in in men's medicine and that's win the morning, win the day. And the basic concept behind that is how you start your day sets the tone for the rest of your day and that that first part of the day should be for you. Which And it's about filling your own cup. If you fill your, your cup up first, then you can better serve and pour from your own cup into other people's lives. But if you're not filling your own cup, then you're basically giving other people your fumes, your leftovers, um, and you're running on empty. So starting that day off with you, with exercise, with meditation, with breath work, with your – our basic formula is uh, exercise, um, breath work or meditation, and gratitudes, intentions, and affirmations. Mm, so great. It is such a ancient way. It's been going, you know, through centuries, this type of work, but I think the way you're doing it now with the type of men and women you're doing it with is really something that needs to be celebrated and it needs to spread like wildfire because we need people attending walks like this. We really do. So, you. you know, we're not saying that this is the answer for everybody. This is just a tool for you to explore this further. So thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having us, Zoe. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.